chapter 15. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Remember, we left off with this uh, understanding that whatever is happening in salvation's history is not just Jesus carrying it out, nor is it just the Holy Spirit, nor is it just the Father, but the entire Trinity is at work at each point. And what Jesus is addressing here is that there's this reality of God going to be ever-present with his church, and how that's going to be in the coming age as he's preparing to leave is going to be the Holy Spirit, not the second person of the Trinity. This is God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so all of this is coming to a head because Jesus is anticipating going to the cross. In 24 hours, he will be dead. And so what is, what is going on here is Jesus is teaching his disciples that you're about to experience a complete shift in how salvation's history is going to be enacted and how you're going to see it. You're going to be my witnesses in this next, uh, in this next epoch of history. There's going to be a complete shift. Right now, uh, during the ministry of Jesus, the witnesses are relegated to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Son, God the Father who calls out from heaven. I mean, you're talking about significant witnesses, all of them ultimates. And there's nothing higher than scripture because it comes from the mouth of God. There's nothing higher than God because there's nothing higher than God. And there's nothing higher than any of the members of the Trinity because all of them, God, there's nothing higher. And so what Jesus is saying is at this point, those are the witnesses, but now there's a shift about to happen. When the Holy Spirit comes, you, he speaks to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Now, what is one of the most important things if you're in a court of law What's one of the most important things for a witness to have? To tell the truth. Well, to tell the truth is one of them. How about memory? That'd be helpful, right? I mean, when you come in, they're always telling about something in the past. They're not talking about, you know, I don't like the way that guy looks, so you need to arrest him. It's, I saw him enter the store at this time, and that is consistent with the murder that happened. That's how a witness works. Right. It's, it's they need memory. And so Jesus will address this to them because he's about to hand them a significant responsibility, these 11 disciples. So watch what he says about this. It starts in verse 1, chapter 16. John, chapter 16, verse 1, right where the witnesses are shifting from the scriptures and the Trinity over to the disciples and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about this much more detail when we're preaching through this section of John, but for today, let's... let's Let's make a beeline through it. Verse 1, chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whomever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now here's the first mention of memory. I do not say these things to you from the beginning... Oh, excuse me, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, that's the Father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I'm going away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. 
I, have, uh, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, the reality is that they were about to go out and be his witnesses. If you remember um, what he said back in chapter 14, verse 26, you will be my witnesses, and when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, comes, he will teach you all things and bring into remembrance all that I have told you. The importance of them carrying out the witness is because the world needs to know. The world needs to know who Jesus of Nazareth was, and this is about to enter the past tense. And so what Jesus is explaining is that this shift that's about to happen means that you, and he's speaking specifically to those 11 disciples in the upper room, you are going to go out into the world and be my witnesses. Now, can we, in, a, in the same sense, be witnesses of Christ? No. Can we, in a different sense? Yes. But in the same sense, no. They had a unique relationship. They actually got to watch Jesus rise people from the dead. Have any of you seen this happen? Uh, So there's a limit to our witness because we believe because we were told by eyewitnesses what has happened and what has occurred. But they got to see it with their own eyes and they bore witness of this and we're about to see this uh, come to full fruition and uh, fulfillment in the book of Acts. And how he's going to address this is saying this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Why? Because he will not speak on his own authority. It's not just the Holy Spirit speaking, it is the entirety of the Trinity. It's not just one side of God, there's no division there like that. This is God himself speaking, the spirit of the prophets, the spirit of uh, Yahweh himself. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so now Jesus, facing down the cross within the next 24 hours, addresses to his disciples the reality that there is a whole new age about to dawn. Now, the disciples at this point are not expecting this. Nobody expected that. In fact, there's, there's a lot to be said for the fact that the disciples expected that there was going to be no harm to come the next day. Jesus had told them several times he was going up to Jerusalem, he was going to be betrayed, and he was going to be, um, he was going to be crucified and buried. And on the third day rise again. But the, the amount of understanding that the disciples had about this is quite questionable. Uh, especially since they seem to be denying it all the way up to the day of. And very confused after it happened. So what he says in verse 14 here is that what the Holy Spirit will do is glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What was the job that the disciples were about to have to do? Let me ask it another way. How much of the scriptures were written yet? Only the Old Testament. That's it. The people of the Lord are going to have to know what Christ did, what he said, what he was. In short, they're going to have to know the works and the words of Christ. This is why the four Gospels are all about Christ. The book of Acts is all about the beginnings of the body of Christ, the church, as the Holy Spirit works, and as we will see, is rolled out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
and then the epistles are all reflecting back on what is it that Christ has done? How preeminent ought he to be? What are the effects that that's to have in our lives and in our church as we continue to go out into this world? Right? I mean, the rest of the epistles are just struggling with this reality that the church is growing past Jerusalem and Judea. No longer are we a single ethnicity worshiping the God of Israel. We are now made up of peoples all around the world trying to address what things are my preferences and what things are the gospel. And so you'll get the vast majority of the New Testament is all going to be focused on delineating between these things. You got someone who says it's just fine to eat food that was offered to idols. Another one says it's not. And Paul doesn't come in and solve the problem for them. He just says, keep in mind each other's scruples. If you know that your friend has a problem with eating food offered to idols, don't ask who the food was offered to. Just go eat the food. And then if you know what it is, and you know that this person's having a problem with it, he says, just eat the vegetables. Is it really that hard? It's not that hard. Stop offending one another. That's the effects of the gospel as it, as it continues on into cultures that are not the same as the Old Testament culture. And so we have all sorts of instances of how to live this out, how to carry it out. And we're going to talk all about that. It requires gentleness. It requires self-control. It requires an enormous amount of love amongst Christians that Christians by nature are not capable of. And so this is what Jesus is saying. It's actually much, much, much better for you that the Holy Spirit comes than if I stay with you. Right? It's one of those things that I think we don't appreciate the significance of the Holy Spirit in working the church. We would probably, if we were honest with ourselves, prefer Jesus be in this room than the Holy Spirit be amongst all of his people. But the reality is he was located corporeally to one place at one time. And so while that might be better for us in this room, it's worse for the rest of the church. How are they going to get along? How are they going to fellowship? How are they going to preach the gospel side by side without the Spirit of God? The answer is, you can't. There's an old hymn that actually addresses this reality. The task that's given to the church, the church is unfit to meet. We don't have that capability to preach the gospel from sanctified mouths. And so we have to address the reality that either the Spirit of God does this or it's just us. Ralph, I turned on the hall speakers by accident. Do you mind switching those off? I apologize. Turn to John 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20 addresses uh, happenings after the resurrection of Jesus. Sorry, I just couldn't think with that. Thank you, Ralph. I appreciate it. John chapter 20 addresses this uh, reality that Jesus appeared to his disciples, and then he talks to them again about the Holy Spirit. Because here they're anticipating yet the same change. Uh, You can pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace to you. Now, this is Easter, by the way, to get your bearings. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's a, that is a huge statement, by the way, um, which we really cannot spend a lot of time with, but I would encourage you to mull over this week. Verse 22, And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I want to point out one thing. The reader should see themselves in this text in the very next section. John structures it just right to make it seem like you are one of the 12 that happened to not be there that day and had to take their word on it. Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't there on Easter Sunday. And so the disciples all told them, we have seen the Lord. Look at this. They were being witnesses of what has happened. And what was Thomas's first response? Eh, nope. Nope. Unless I get what you guys got, got to see his hands, got to see his side, just as he just presented to them. Now, the other 10 disciples didn't ask for that, but they received it. Jesus showed up and goes, hands, side. And they're like, oh, okay. And then Thomas goes, um, you got that. I, I, I'm owed that. I, I want to see his hand, his side. I want to put my fingers in his nail print. I want to put my hand in his side. I want to verify these things. What should we see from that? Was Thomas right before he verified? No. He says, unless I see that, I won't believe that it's true. It was true whether you believed it or not, Thomas. Right? And the same thing is to the reader. And this is the very same chapter where John explains why he's writing this so that you will believe, having never seen him or felt his nail scars or anything like that, I'm writing these things so you don't fall into the same pit. And we are all of us, all of us, given to that temptation to think that it's up to us to verify these things. But it's not. That's pride. We, we don't have that ability. More than that, we don't have that right. It's kind of like when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're just like, uh, we need to verify you know, all these things. He's like, yeah, you're from the earth. You can't do that. <coughs> There's no humility in, in seeking that kind of a thing. Um, There's simply a, a pride in it. And so when he breathes on them <coughs> and he expresses to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And this reality, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withheld the forgiveness from any, it's withheld. What do you think about this passage? Does that make you question some stuff? No, does uh, does verse twenty two or twenty three sound a little strange to you? Mm-hmm. Yep, it sounds strange, doesn't it? Most of the difficulty is that English doesn't work very well when it comes to statements like this. Uh, our language is built out of all sorts of little small words trying to make things clear. In Greek, it's really really clear. If you go out and preach the gospel rightly, the forgiveness of sins and you recognize and preach to them the forgiveness of sins, and you preach it faithfully, here's the outcome. It's actually in the perfect past tense, which means, let me try, let me try, it's very clunky if you try to say it in English. If you, the expression is for, uh, recognize, if you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven them. You see the difference? If you withhold forgiveness from any, 
it has been withheld. It's a statement of something that happened already. In other words, if you go out and preach the gospel faithfully, and you preach forgiveness of sins to somebody, and they have believed in Christ, they've already been forgiven. In other words, you're partnering with a work that's already been going on. And if you withhold that, in other words, the faithful preaching of the gospel also means withholding of forgiveness from those who are not repentant. He says, if you go out and preach that, the Lord is on your side. It's the same message I've been giving. Right? Jesus did this multiple times. He comes to Bethsaida, he comes to Chorazin, and he preaches to them, and he says, look, I've done all these works in your midst, I've preached all this word in your midst, and you haven't believed at all. Sodom and Gomorrah, if I had done these works in their midst, they would have all repented. As it is, they're going to rise up in judgment against this generation. That, that's just heavy stuff. Why does he say it like that? Well, one... Jesus was the one, well, okay, excuse me, the pre-incarnate son was the one who was there that day with Abraham before he sent the two angels down the mountain. So when Jesus is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about first-hand experience. He was the one that ordered the destruction. Does that fit with your idea of Jesus? It should. And so when he's saying this to them, what responsibility I had, he says, as the incarnate son of God, as the temple of God in the world, I'm now handing to you. The same message of forgiveness and withholding of forgiveness comes along and God backs it up. Maintain faithfulness. And how is it they're going to do this? Again, we come back to the reality. The church is given a job she's not fit to meet. There's nothing in our prerogative that we can go out and say, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven. We can't do that. We're even told our limits can't even see our own hearts clearly, let alone somebody else's heart. All we can do is faithfully give it to the world. And the reality is, in faithful preaching, that means there is forgiveness for some and not forgiveness for others. Which means you want to know what unfaithful preaching looks like. If you're going out and preaching that everyone's forgiven, you've got a problem. And if you're going out and saying no one is, unless they fix themselves, you've got another problem. There's always two sides to the giving of the gospel. And Jesus here is mentioning, he's saying, I've had that responsibility, now I'm handing it to you. The temple of God in the world at the time was Jesus' own body. It was about to change. And after many, many, many months... Yes, sir? Is this the first um, place where the disciples... Receive the Holy Spirit at this point? Okay, so I'm glad you asked that because I forgot to mention this part of it. Um, this is a temporary reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are still, and I know it's hard to press this point, even at this point because we're sitting on the cusp of it, we are still in the Old Covenant here. We have not entered the church age. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. And so we're, we're getting right up to it, and Jesus is saying, here's a small experience of what it will be. And so what they experienced there in the upper room without Thomas there, I can't really attest to because it doesn't explain it. But there was some temporal, temporary thing that happened where they experienced that the Holy Spirit was with them in a way. And so Jesus, who had had the Holy Spirit since his, uh, since his baptism up to this point, breathed on them, handed them the Holy Spirit. Now, still temporary. Because as we open up the book of Acts, we find out that after that, a couple of weeks later, they didn't. So there's still this temporary Holy Spirit come for a, a period of time and then leave. 
and then will come not just on those 11, but as we will see, because we're about to open the book of Acts, we're going to see this expanding out to what Moses wished for. Before we do that, I want to introduce the, God, uh, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is one of the most complicated books in all of the scriptures next to like Jeremiah and Revelation. And so I want to uh, put up uh, an introduction to it. We got part one of the introduction. It's only like seven minutes long, but it will very help you get your bearings, I think, before we jump into Acts chapter one. The book of Acts is the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing his disciples about life in his kingdom. So he promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in his personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the Messianic kingdom, God's presence, his spirit, would come and take up residence among his people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the spirit will empower his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man who was vindicated after his suffering and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so he promises that he will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria full of non-Jewish people. And then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth. This video is just going to focus on the first half of the book. So the Jerusalem focus section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost, when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city. And the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind, and something like flames appear over each person's head, and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds. And they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before, but all the people gathered there understand perfectly. Now, 
In order to see what Luke's emphasizing in this story, it's crucial to see the Old Testament roots of all of these images. So first, the wind and the fire is a direct allusion to the stories about God's glorious fiery presence filling the tabernacle and the temple. And it's also connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by his spirit in the new temple of the messianic kingdom. And so here in Acts, God's fiery presence comes to dwell not in a building, but in his people. Luke is saying that the new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus's new covenant family, the people of Jesus, which connects to the second thing Luke is trying to say here. So the prophets promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple, he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the Messianic king, and that the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced to the nations. Luke describes in detail the international multi-tribe makeup of all of the Israelites who were there at Pentecost and who responded to Peter's message. And so the apostles keep calling Israelites to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and thousands upon thousands respond, forming new communities of generosity and worship and celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now, in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts, only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor, which is really cool. But it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here until you realize that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And this conflict between the two temples, it culminates in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's the first wave of persecution. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested, and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers. God sent them, including Jesus, and now his disciples. So the Jerusalem leaders are enraged. They murder Stephen, and they launch a wave of persecution against Jesus' followers that drives most of them from the city. But it has a paradoxical effect. Luke shows how this tragedy actually became the means by which Jesus' people are now sent out into Judea and Samaria. Now in this section, Luke has collected a diverse group of stories that all show how the mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement. So first is the mission of Philip into Samaria. It's the land of Israel's hated enemies, and many of them come to follow Jesus. 
Next we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of Jesus' followers until he personally met the risen Jesus, and he then became a passionate advocate on behalf of Jesus. Next is the story of Peter having a vision about how God doesn't consider non-Jewish people ritually impure or unworthy of joining Jesus' family. And so Peter, he's led by the Spirit into the house of a Roman soldier, just full of non-Jewish people, and they all respond to the good news about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit shows up powerfully upon them, just as he did to the Jewish disciples back in chapter 2. These themes all come together in the founding of the church in Antioch, the largest, most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. And Luke, he tells us that Barnabas, a Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church, went along with Paul to help lead this church community. And so it became the first large multi-ethnic church in history. It was where Jesus' followers were called Christians for the first time. And it's from here that the first international missionaries were sent out. And so we see Jesus' commission coming true. And this takes us into the rest of Luke's story. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Acts. I hope that helped. Um... Just to be clear, we are on the tail end of the ends of the earth. We are as far away from all of that as, uh, as imaginable. So um, the, uh, the way that that's told is that this is the Acts, not even primarily of the Apostles, though it is the Acts of the Apostles, but chiefly the Acts of Christ and the Spirit of God, as this promise goes out that the gospel itself would not reside only in Jerusalem, nor would the temple. That was always the hope, wasn't it? The temple of God in Jerusalem would be fully established. It's still the hope of a lot of Jewish people today. But the hope of a physical single-site temple is not consistent with the gospel. This is what Jesus was saying all along. When he was saying to them, tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it up again. They're like, oh, it took 52 years to build this temple. You say you're going to build it up in three days? And then clarifies that he was talking about his body. You put me to death. I will raise myself up in three days' time. The same thing goes for the church. The church is now the temple. There's no, there's no singular temple in the world. This building here is not our temple. The gathering of Christians, regardless of background, regardless of language, regardless of anything, is the temple, as it expresses, of the Holy Spirit. By the way, let me take care of just a misunderstanding as well. Your body is not the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's said in the plural on purpose. Again, one of the weaknesses of English. Uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is a plural you. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is something that, and there should be a translation in English just like that, so we can always determine when it's plural like that. Y'all, yeah. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a singular body throughout the world that is made up of all Christians. All of even the local expressions of that are parts of the temple. Um, this temple now will be completely different. We're going to see it. Let's start in Acts chapter 1. This is one of the things I love about Luke's telling of stories is that he is writing it to a singular person, and he goes out and he has uh, researched all of these things. As he comes to the book of Acts, a lot of this will be eyewitness accounts because he traveled with Paul, and so from about chapter 8 forward, uh, most of it's eyewitness accounts of his own telling. Uh, Luke is. And so he's placing himself, Luke, not a Jewish name, by the way, he is a Greek. He is placing himself as one of those 
that is the recipient of this story that has come to them as a Greek Christian. And he goes back and tells this whole story of the witnesses that led up to him traveling with Paul and their missionary journeys throughout the Greek-speaking Roman world. Uh, and so he, he starts off, and it's just important. Uh, so we'll start off in verse 1, chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, and he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now that's, that's an enormous smashing of uh, uh, probably one of the most amazing six weeks of those apostles' lives. They are literally for 40 days learning from Christ about all the things that we have to do. Now, can you think, just think with me for a second, of a parallel? Why 40 days? What was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that the Spirit of God brought on him immediately after his baptism? Temptations for 40 days in the wilderness. Right there at the inauguration of what would be his responsibility to go out into the world with the Holy Spirit, brand newly given to him, commissioned to carry out the preaching of the kingdom of heaven. The exact same thing he does with his disciples. For 40 days, he is with them. He teaches them many proofs, but his main focus here is about the kingdom of God. Now, we will see in the Gospel of Acts, especially for Peter and especially for Paul, addressing this reality that the Spirit of God, before Paul walks into a city, now, you can imagine how hard this job would be, right? Before Paul walks into a city, the Holy Spirit informs him of all the things he's going to suffer in that city. He tells him before he goes into the city gates. How, how um, complicated of a relationship would that be? And this is one of the things that we're going to see. Here we're seeing it for all of them. 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, showing them the gospel, clarifying for them these things. And so Luke is writing and saying, for 40 days this happened. Now, how does Luke know this? Because he's spoken to all of them. Because the disciples carried out their job as witnesses of all the things that Jesus had begun to do and to teach. Uh, verse 4, And while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You had heard from me, for John baptized with water. And here, again, he's going right back to the beginning of his ministry uh, the baptism of his own baptism, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so we see here, this is six weeks after the events of Easter Sunday, and they are addressing, uh, or Jesus is addressing this reality that what had happened to him at his baptism was only a foreshadowing of what was about to happen to them. And so he says, don't leave Jerusalem until it happens. Now, this is going to be something very unique for us. We don't experience this today because the Holy Spirit is throughout the world, amongst Christians everywhere. But here, the Holy Spirit does not immediately fall on all peoples everywhere that belong in fear of the Lord. It starts in Jerusalem, the coming of the Holy Spirit. He comes only to one room in Jerusalem, and then from there, there is a rollout that continues with the message of the gospel. It would be thoroughly confusing, let's put it this way, if somebody far away from Jerusalem 
that hadn't heard of the ministry of Christ and was just a fear of the God of Israel, let's say a Jew living in Damascus or, or a Jew living in Ephesus or something, all of a sudden got the Holy Spirit and didn't know what in the world was happening. Right? And so what we're going to see is throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, in order to go to all of those who worship the Lord, the Holy Spirit goes only as far as the preaching of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ goes. We will actually see all the way up to chapter 18. There's a group of God-fearers who had been baptized by John the Baptist that had never even heard of the Holy Spirit before, were still saved people, but still hadn't gotten this, uh, the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's like, wait a second, how, how are you guys without the Holy Spirit? That's not right. You should have heard of this. And they're just like, we, we didn't hear about that. What do we? And he's like, well, what, what, what kind of baptism did you get? And they said, well, John, of course. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. And he lays out for them the gospel. They all receive the Holy Spirit. It's actually the last instance of that ever happening. It's going to be a remarkable story when we get there. But all of this starts here as a commissioning of the apostles to bring the message of the gospel out so that the Holy Spirit goes and fills his temple. So they have to stay in Jerusalem until that starts. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? <laughs> After six weeks of learning about the kingdom of heaven, they still forget it's not a kingdom of this earth. Oh, by the way, after 2,000 years, we still forget that. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, there's a limit to this message. It's not for you to know. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And this, this structure, as, as they well ordered out, this is the structure of the, uh, the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That rollout, now I call it that just by crass terms, uh, the rollout of the Holy Spirit is, is probably one of the most unique elements of the, of the book of Acts um, and it's the last thing that Jesus says in his incarnation. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven and he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I have a feeling they're a little bit more than men. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, look back down to the earth. It's time to get to work. And so they go out, back to the upper room. They return back to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. They went to the upper room. Now, behold here the last Old Testament covenantal decision made by the casting of lots. Again, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. I, I have heard people... Uh, look at what the 10 disciples did here, or excuse me, what the 11 disciples did here and call it sinful because they cast lots to determine who was to take Judas Iscariot's place. No, they are still in the old covenant. The, the new kingdom has not come yet. And so in order for them to make a decision, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They can't just come together and say, hey, this seems right to us, judging by the scriptures and judging by the spirit. They only have the scriptures and they have the, the uh, old covenant way of determining the will of God. As it says in the book of Proverbs, the hand casts the lot into the lap, but the Lord determines its outcome. Yes, sir. So how long did they have that Holy Spirit when he breathed on them? It was a short time. Yeah, it was a short time. So, and, and now here, mm -hmm. it's gone. That's correct. 
So I would imagine only for the day of the end of Easter, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit when Thomas saw them later. So I would imagine very temporary, um, like an hour. That would be my guess. Like just as you are in here, experience this for a second. This is not plan B. This was always plan A. Um, yeah, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit when Thomas came, you know. Uh, so, yeah, no, here we're still Old Covenant stuff. And that, that's why it's really important when you're dealing with the Holy Spirit and how he leads his people and stuff. Uh, we are Old Covenant all the way to the end of Acts chapter 1. And so he's still interacting in a very Old Testament way. Uh, and that is about to change, which is, by the way, why you never see the apostles ever do the casting of lots or any such thing ever again. This is the last instance of it. And so um, what is it that they say here? So Peter... Yeah, Peter stood up in the midst of them, among the brothers. This is verse 15. The company of persons in the upper room was about uh, was in all about 120. Now, so we're dealing with many more than just the disciples. We're dealing with many more than just the, 12, uh, the 11 disciples here. We're, you know, we're dealing with 109 other people. And so what they're saying here, uh, while they're devoting themselves to prayer and everything, they were with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Yes, he, Jesus had brothers, despite uh, an argument I had this week. Um, and, uh, so as, as Peter stood up among the, the brothers, the company of persons was all about 120. He said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Uh, by the way, if you don't have that view of scripture, I would encourage you to have that view of scripture. There's an inevitability when scripture says something that it will come to pass. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who would become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, again, the, the just the tacit acknowledgement that there is a unanimity between the covenants here on the morning that it switched. The Holy Spirit spoke this stuff. The Holy Spirit's about to speak new stuff, but it's the same God and the same purpose in the same gospel. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, uh, this is Luke speaking. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. What a great story. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language uh, a keldamah, that is, the field of blood. Uh, for it is written in the book of Psalm, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one who dwells in it and let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the, watch this, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, that means, Luke is telling us, that while I've only been telling you about some of his disciples, that means there's been other people all along the whole story from the baptism of John, or the baptism of Jesus by John, all the way until the ascension of Jesus, there's been other people. Now, we don't get this in the Gospels that much. We get a, pieces of it. But here, Peter is saying, we have to come down to, uh, there, there's got to be some amongst this 120 that we can uh, put into this. But the prerequisite of being one of the disciples is you have to have been a witness to all the things that Jesus did from his baptism forward. And so they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, really unfortunate name, who was also called Justice, much better name, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen 
to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So now we have twelve apostles, twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Old Covenant, what's happening about the New Covenant. Holy Spirit speaking to us about this. We have to follow his instructions. Holy Spirit speaking through us. You can see there on the morning of transition, everything's being handed over. Yes, ma'am. Do you think the person who would have been chosen if it wasn't for Messiah, <coughs> would he feel like he did something wrong? That's an interesting question. You're referring to uh, Barsabbas, Justice, Joseph. Um, uh, would he feel like he did something wrong? I would hope not, because it's not what it means. Uh, there is a purpose to God. God did not choose the 12 disciples because they were so great. He actually chose them because they were so ordinary. Um, and so there was nothing good in them. So not being chosen to it would be there's nothing bad in me that necessitated me not being chosen for that. So I would hope he wouldn't understand it that way. Uh, but nothing's said about him afterwards uh, that we know of. So that's what they were up to in the upper room. Oh, six minutes left. Let's start the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Very, very, very important. The coming of the Holy Spirit was at first localized. The Holy Spirit did not come to all God-fearers in the world. This had to go with the message of the witnesses, the disciples. This is why it was so important to Peter and to the rest of them that the person they have take Judas Iscariot's place is somebody who has witnessed all of Jesus' messages, all of his miracles, all of his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. Yes, sir? Is this the 12 or is this the 120? This is the 120. Okay, okay, yes, this is the 120. The right. Right, so the first place that it goes beyond the 12 is to the other 108. In this one room. Yeah, huge room. Uh, it, would be, it would be a large family gathering room, probably the atrium uh, or the, the roof uh, uh, above the atrium or something of the sorts. Um, this would be a huge room. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, just stop for a second. So many things just happened. So many things, in fact, that you could sit here for probably an hour and just discuss each of these themes. Because as we've been through the entire Old Testament, all sorts of pictures should be coming to your head. Why tongues of fire? Why do each of them have little fire tornadoes on the top of their heads? Does that recall to your mind something, maybe from Exodus? What was sitting on top of the tabernacle is now, in small form, sitting on each of them. How about the wind? What crossed the Red Sea? What caused it to dry up? A huge east wind all night came, everything from Exodus. A huge east wind blew all night long, separating out the ocean, drying up the ground, and then they could walk across through which God's salvation came. Not only that, the filling of the glory of the temple, the, uh, the commissioning of Solomon's temple back a thousand years before this, same exact experience with the exception of no fire tornado that time. Now, we had seen tabernacle, we got rushing wind, 
smoke-filled everything, fire tornado, just incredible stuff. Literally, I call it a fire tornado because when people say pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke uh, and a pillar of fire, they don't really think about what it really is. This is a fire tornado. Yes, sir. And it sat on each one of them individually. Same spirit now filling every stone of the temple. That is really the picture of what's going on. Peter will tell us that story in 1 Peter and uh, chapter 2. We'll get there. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues. Why on earth are they doing that? Why? Just to go, oh, I got tricks. <laughs> Why? Why speaking in other tongues? There's a practicality to it, and there's a fixing of something that goes beyond Exodus, further back in history. Yes, ma'am. Tower of Babel, very good. The undoing of the Tower of Babel. All of mankind was with one language. And with a singular language, there was no limit to what mankind could do, correct? Come down, what happens? The confusing of languages confused what it was that mankind could do together. And here, what do we have? We have the unraveling of Babel. We are going to go back and have a singular message going out to anyone in their heart language. Now, first of all, there's there's wonderful themes here for Bible translation, legitimacy, and all sorts of other stuff. People need to hear the mysteries of God in their own heart language. This is something that thankfully we after we had lost in the early church, we regained in the Protestant Reformation. One of my favorite things that came out of the Reformation was translating the Bible into the tongues that people actually speak, vernacular language uh, translations of the scriptures. But here again, as we're about to see, they go out and they're preaching, and, and Jews that are visiting Jerusalem from all over the world get to witness and listen to what they're saying. All of them did. Yep. So they spoke as if it was their own language. And then to the hearing. Now, so this is the thing that people don't get. This is a very, very unique moment. When they spoke, if your heart language was Arabic, that's what you heard. If your heart language was Russian, that's what you heard. This is not just, I can speak Russian today. This is, I, Peter speaks, and everyone hears him in their own language. That is a very different event than anything that has ever occurred. We've never seen a miracle like that in the miracles of Jesus. We've never seen anything like that in the Old Covenant. We've never seen anything like that, period. That is as miraculous and as overwhelmingly different as the Tower of Babel because it is undoing that. We're going back to a time where the message of Christ, and see, so what, why is this so important? Because it's not just about the works. Again, it's the words, not only of Jesus, but now of his witnesses. You can't just go out and say, okay, apostles, your job is to go feed the poor and to do good works. It's not enough. The word has to go with them. The message of the cross, the message of the kingdom of heaven will travel with them as the spirit gives literal utterance. Pretty remarkable. So if it was just 120 that was in the room, how would the other people there Right. So they went out. So watch this. Um, they went out from the room right. and did this. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, verse 5, Jews. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a, yep. 
to... <laughs> be, right? Yeah, well, one would think. Uh, there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, that is that is um, that is ancient Near East way of saying all the important places. This doesn't mean there was Mayans there and Aztecs or anything like that. This means that from all the meaningful places that Jews live, all of them were here in Jerusalem. They all came there for Passover, which was very normal. And then because the events of Passover were so bizarre, as we saw on the road to Emmaus, there's like everyone's just talking about Jesus of Nazareth and all the stuff that happened in the earthquakes and the darkness over the land. What does it mean? They are still there waiting for Pentecost. And so the occurrence of all these things, not by accident, but seven and a half weeks later, we're here at the day of Pentecost, and everyone's still wondering about this, and that's when this happens. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, and saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Remember, they have a horrible accent. They're just from the back country. You know, who, who cares what Galileans say? Nothing good can come from Nazareth, and nothing good has ever come from Galilee, right? They're all Galileans. How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Look at this list. Parthians, Medes, that's from Persia. Elamites, that is Persia. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, that's all the way in Asia Minor, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. I mean, the northern uh, coast of Africa, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. You've got Persia, you've got Syria, Damascus, all of Asia Minor. This is a huge list of places. Uh, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. So basically, everywhere that's meaningful, that Jews reside, all are here listening to them. Uh, verse 11, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking them and saying, ah, they're drunk. What a good excuse to not listen. Followed only up with Peter's uh, absolute awesome response to that challenge. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifting up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, we're about to hear a remarkable claim. When we were back in the gospel, or the gospel, the prophet Joel, we addressed this reality that there was a promise that one day the Spirit would come and there would be no distinguishing uh, it, with regards to where the Spirit would reside between young women and old or between young men and old, or any such thing. They would have different effects, but he would dwell with them all. And so he quotes the prophet Joel. This is the first part of the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. He quotes Joel, and he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
So they're, they could all understand what he just said. That's exactly correct. Yep. They all understood the message of the prophet Joel in their own home native tongue. Yeah. This is something that, and this is one of the reasons why I hold that Joel was much earlier in the prophetic witness than a lot of people think he was. There's two dates that are possible for Joel. One is before the captivity or one is after it. And I hold it is before it. Why? Because as far as the message of the Holy Spirit is concerned, that's the only place it fits. It's inaugurating this promise that, yes, we're about to experience something horrible as a country. But the message goes out that there's not an end to this uh, in any way that's eternal. There's just temporal ends. And so what, is, what does Peter say about this? Uh, all of these things, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. All right, there's the witness. With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. There is the terminology that's so important to the book of Acts. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that is a remarkable sermon. We just read it in its entirety. It doesn't have any of the flourish of how this applies to your life. It doesn't have any of the other. In fact, half of it is just scripture being read. This is a consistent message that has been going on for a thousand years. He goes back to David. He goes back to Joel. And he says, this is the plan that was meant to be carried out. You shouldn't actually be surprised. You should be worshiping God. You shouldn't be surprised that God, who confused the language, is now bringing order to where language once was just nothing but confusion. Their response, of course, is how in the world are we to respond to this? What shall we do? And Peter's response to them Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not reside only with 120. But as the message of the words and works of Jesus go out, the Holy Spirit is hot on its tail. As people repent and believe on Christ and are baptized, yes, that will happen at the same time, uh, at least for the early part of the uh, first parts of Acts. 
<clears throat> the Holy Spirit will be given to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, just as Joel was expressing. So it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah. Why no distinction amongst slaves or freemen or male or female, daughters, old men, young men? Why, why no real distinction there? Why is it that the Spirit is now amongst everyone? Shouldn't there be some like safekeeping or something? Just just with like the leaders, maybe. Right? Like it goes back to numbers, doesn't it? Moses had the Holy Spirit, and then uh, Jethro gave him the advice that maybe you should have 70 elders that help you lead everything. And so he brings the 70 elders, and then the Spirit of God is divvied up amongst them. And then it almost stops there. There was two others that didn't have the, uh, well, let's say the chutzpah to come to the tent of meeting. I probably would have been one of those. And, and they end up prophesying in the camp. And, and what is it? Joshua is, you know, oh, my goodness, they're doing this outside your leadership, Moses. And Moses says what? What does he wish for? I wish that all the people would have the Spirit of God. Don't hinder them. The Spirit of God goes where he wills, as we learn from the mouth of Jesus himself in John chapter 3. <clears throat> Here, the intention of the Spirit is there will be no distinction whatsoever regarding who has the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we all have the same roles. It doesn't mean we all have the same responsibilities or the same application. No, it means we all have the same Spirit. That's right. Every single person who calls on the name of the Lord in this church age receives this gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the message of Pentecost. That is going to be absolutely necessary because before all of this, the people of God had a singular ethnicity, nation, and place, and temple to hold them cohesively together. We don't have that anymore, right? We have different ethnicities. We have different languages. We have different countries. Sometimes, Christian, there is a church in town that is made up of Russian and Ukrainian Christians, those two countries are at war right now. And they can still meet together and worship God. Amen. Okay? That is complicated stuff. That is politically complicated. It's something that we don't really tend to deal with in our country very often. But that kind of stuff has been the norm for the history of the world. We cannot just define Christianity or the gift of the Holy Spirit by ethnicity, nor our unity. It cannot just come from the things we hold in common. It has to come by the Spirit of God. Now, if it's coming by the Spirit of God, what do we know? The Spirit of God's main role is the giver of life. It means that the unity that we have in the Spirit is not something possible for you and I to just work up the gumption to do. You say, well, in order to be a Christian, you've got to agree with me on some of the political stuff. No, there's Christians that are wrong on everything. I'm one of them. There's Christians that have blind spots in their theology. They have errors in their theology. In fact, there's no Christian that has perfect theology. And if perfect theology was enough to save you, guess what? The demons and Satan himself would be saved. Yeah, verse 38 through 39 are, are the summary of all of that. You know, yeah, exactly. It sums up the whole, this is the only way. Yep. You know, so that's that, um, real important there. Oh, you'll see that especially uh, in Acts 17 when we come to um, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where Paul comes up and says, look, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Now, he, now he's standing in Athens preaching to all the philosophers. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, right? Your philosopher's got a couple of things right, but it's not enough. 
It's not enough. You know, they can only come so far. He says, now let me tell you about the God you don't know and you're trying to worship. And then he talks to them all about Christ and the resurrection. And because Greek philosophers hate the idea of the body, there was a lot of them that left that day. But then some of them were repenting and believing the gospel. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. Pretty good pattern here on the way back. Oh, yeah. You know, coming in and, and if we get there and then there's like some falling away, then we get there, there's some falling away. You know what I mean? Yep. Coming up through and then you get there and there's some. Yep. It, it's, it's one of those things that um, the church always has to protect itself against trying to just find new converts based on how close they are to us nationally or politically. You know, well, they have some sense about them. They agree with me this way or that. Um, and it'll, it'll cause us to selectively evangelize. That's not right. We should be open to evangelizing anyone that the Lord brings across our path. Let me express to you this list of nations that was going down there. They're not all in the Roman Empire. Some of them are at war with Rome. And the Jews still traveled in just to come for, just to come for Passover and the day of Pentecost. And Peter is there speaking to them about this, saying there is a unity that will come from this. Now, here's the reality. After Pentecost and after the, I mean, the first day of the church, how many of you know how many were added to the 120? 3,000 because of the preaching of that morning. 3,000. And what did they do after this? They went home. And the message of the gospel and the kingdom and the Holy Spirit went with them. This continues and continues on. And so the subtext in the book of Acts is, yes, we follow along the Acts of the Apostles, but every time somebody comes a Christian and goes back home to Pamphylia or Phrygia or wherever, Egypt, Libya, North Africa, Arabia, Persia, they're all going back home and they have the Holy Spirit. So all of a sudden we go from 120 to 3,120. That's a remarkable thing. And then that 3,000 were all visitors, the vast majority of them. They went home and brought the kingdom's message with them. Now, does that mean it instantly uh, goes ever? No, there's still a whole lot of work to be done. And that's what the book of Acts is really all about. Um, <clears throat> oh, man, it's 10.15. Oh, okay. We're going to have to come back to the day of Pentecost next week. Um, and we'll just pick up there again because there's a lot of other themes that we have got to address here. Any questions here right at the end or observations that you think should be made? Do you think the 3,000 were still speaking in tongues so as they traveled back? We'll get to that. The gift of tongues changes after the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost, I believe, was unique. Um, The gift of tongues that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 has different aspects to it. Um, this, this case of somebody speaking and the crowd hearing in their own native tongues, that's, that is completely unique. We never see anything like that again. It, if that's the only gift of tongues, then that wasn't happening in Corinth because there wouldn't be need for interpreters. Right. Right? So we have a completely different gift there in First Corinthians. So I don't believe this ever happened again. I think it was just for that morning. By the way, it also speaks to the tentativeness of some of these gifts. Some of the most extreme ones, we shouldn't be surprised if they fall away. Uh, or are only used on the front lines, which is actually what I hold to. I'm not a strict cessationist when it comes to this stuff. I, I hate 
I hate putting limits where God hasn't said he put limits on himself. It would not surprise me, for instance, if in the preaching of the gospel to an unreached tribe somewhere that somebody was able to speak in tongues. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't, I have never seen proof of it. It just wouldn't surprise me. God does stuff like that, that just is outside our sphere of expectation all the time. So um, I, I am a cessationist with a little bit of an asterisk there uh, when it comes to these things. Yes, they were never the norm. They were always exceptional. Are there exceptional events happening today? Maybe. <laughs> I haven't seen the whole world. Uh, and God hasn't expressed it directly in his word. So, all right, let me, uh, let me pray for us and let's go to service. Our Father, we're grateful for this. What a, what a story. Um, what a commissioning of the church. Uh, to see that faithfully giving your word and the message of your kingdom uh, brings those whom you are bringing. Father, we pray that we join in that same message, that same work uh, that is concerned with the needs of one another and uh, that one another would would worship Christ uh, first and foremost. And Father, we look forward to uh, our time together in your word uh, here this morning and singing your praises for the work and the word that you have given. We pray, Father, that we hold both uh, with open hands and with open hearts in service to one another. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.